Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development at QIC, and each Monday morning we join the Liquid Markets Group market meeting to get the latest update across all traded markets. Good morning. It is Monday, the 14th of September, and we start the week with state frictions, headlined by Victoria's Daniel Andrews, who's under increasing pressure as the economic cost of the lockdown measures is felt as their state of emergency and disasters are extended a further month. To the RBA's potential delight, Andrews announced a $3 billion package over the weekend to support local businesses with grants, tax relief and cash flow support. Meanwhile, China is looking less likely to be Australia's economic support lifeline in this crisis. As reports emerge, Chinese investment has fallen for the third straight year. But let's now head overseas. Stuart Simmons, our head of currencies, here with me on the Market Moments podcast. Stuart, we are now just six weeks out from the US elections and the financial markets are starting to lose their momentum. The S&P ended the week down. Are fundamentals playing a role? Thanks, Craig. Yeah, it was another tough week on Wall Street. As investors, they've had a bit more time to assess the durability of a rally that is underpinned in some sectors by an unhealthy level of retail and institutional speculation. But as we emphasised last week, the more severe aspects of the unwind are occurring within those areas which experienced the most spectacular surge, and that's notably those mega cap tech stocks. Uh, especially in the US. Now, even on Wall Street, price action across many sectors remains orderly and stocks across Europe and Japan actually rallied over the past week. And moreover, we're still seeing subdued and orderly price action across other asset classes, uh, notably rates, uh, credit, commodities and uh, exchange rates. Uh, The concentrated nature of this unwind belies its more technical nature rather than one that is really driven by fundamentals. And that's not to say there weren't any fundamental setbacks last week, uh, including that one of those leading vaccine prospects having to pause their trial due to unexplained side effects. Now that kicks off again shortly. Uh, Increasing prospects of a no deal between the UK and the EU got a lot of noise and headlines last week. Uh, We saw some signs that growth momentum is waning in the US, particularly around uh, those jobless claims and um, ongoing setbacks in that next phase of US fiscal stimulus, raising doubts of any new policy being passed ahead of November's presidential election. But it's really important to reiterate the fundamental foundations which do provide a lot more durability for asset prices in the more medium to long term. And this includes that massive global fiscal stimulus not seen in a prior peacetime environment. Uh, We've got that unprecedented level of monetary stimulus with direct support in some sectors, a stronger than expected economic rebound, better corporate earnings than expected, and uh, an unprecedented amount of resources being deployed in vaccine development. And this leads us on to the outlook for this week with the most important fixture on the calendar is the US FOMC meeting. Uh, we're going to hear more about that later, but you know, my perspective is it's it's premature to think that the Fed need to react to a healthy clean out of concentrated positions. But never, nevertheless, there'll be plenty of interest in the way the Fed evolved their messaging and potentially their policy in the wake of that new policy framework. Uh, as you mentioned, we're only weeks away from the US election and that level of noise is only gonna amplify from here. 
Stu, can I uh, resist the temptation to stay in the US and switch to Europe, uh, on, and particularly on the currency front, with the, Europe, uh, the euro rather rallying over those latest ECB statements, in spite of some concerns about the impact of that poor inflation print. So was this rally in the euro well-founded, Stu? Yeah, uh, you know, the ECB did sneak in an innocuous reference to the exchange rate in the press conference, highlighting that they're assessing incoming information, including developments on the exchange rate for the implications on the inflation outlook. As far as investors perceive this, this is really level one uh, of verbal intervention. This is a long way from Trichet's brutal moves type of rhetoric from 2007. And equally, you know, the euro is also a long way from where it was during that 2007-2008 period where it rallied right up towards 160. And staying in the region, Stu, um, the GBP has crumbled. The sterling has crumbled against the Aussie dollar to its lowest levels since 2018. We're going to hear from Paul in a second, but are the Brexit negotiations the main drive of this currency movement? Yeah, and, and that sterling reference against the Aussie, it's really the pound that where that price action occurred. And, and the pound was the worst performing currency on the week uh, across all currencies, including developed, emerging and frontier markets. You know, they're looking to pursue a domestic policy that reneges on aspects of the withdrawal agreement, raising the prospect of a no trade deal once that transition period ends. So it is making a lot of um, headlines, but, you know, I, I do question how fat that fat tail can be for the UK in the post-COVID environment which is redefined tail risks, especially with governments and central banks no longer as hesitant in providing massive scale coordinated support. Thank you, Stuart Simmons, for that macro and currency update. Uh, you're listening to Craig Balanswaler and QIC's Market Moments podcast. We're now going to switch to equities and welcome Robert Swan, our head of risk premium and equities. Robert, the S&P closed the week down with reports that cyclical stocks provided some support against that deteriorating tech story. So how did the global markets fare? Thanks, Ray. You're right. The Nasdaq led the global markets lower. It finished the week down 4.6% and the broader S&P was off 2.5%. The real star of the week was actually the FTSE, which is really benefiting from the lower British pound. And this is something we've actually seen before in the wake of the first Brexit vote. And you've just mentioned that the FTSE, Robert, of course, the uh, UK has just announced a uh, an unprecedented deal, as they put it, with Japan. Was that one of the main drivers, though, as well for the FTSE, or was it purely currency? Potentially, Craig, but I think the currency probably, a lot of the companies that are within the FTSE are really generating uh, returns offshore. And so those companies are really benefiting from the lower GBP. So let's switch gears to volatility. With that S&P falling, did you see volatility start to rise, Robert? Uh, we've actually seen a continuation of the positive correlation between volatility. So on the week, the VIX, which is, I guess, the 30-day variant swap price, it was off about 3.8%. And probably more interestingly, we actually saw uh, a, a flattening of the US election or Trump bump that we've seen, which is the price of the October variant swap price. It actually fell by almost five vol points compared to the futures around it falling only by about 3.3 vol points. So what's your take there, Rob, of the, of, I suppose, a flattening of the curve? Because I was going to ask you around the, the VIX being focused on the front end of the curve, but it sounds like the longer end of the curve moved as well. Yeah, so we did see an article a couple, maybe a week or so ago from Bloomberg about pushing a trade which is essentially a butterfly on the VIX 
term structure. So I guess what you're seeing here is potentially people implementing that trade by selling the uh, election volatility and buying volatility around each side of that uh, point. Fantastic. Let's switch to commodities. Um, crude oil has been falling over oversupply concerns. Where did we end the week, Robert, on commodities? Yeah, so within the crude space, uh, we saw prices fall by about five and a half percent. That's given up pretty much the last three months worth of performance. So crude's been slowly inching higher for the last three months and probably over the last two weeks, we've given that all back. As you say, oversupply was a bit of a concern. We had Saudi Arabia actually drop the price of Asian delivery crude, as well as questions around where the growth or demand growth is going to come from. In precious metals, they were pretty flat for the week. Excellent. Thanks, Robert, for that update on the commodity and equity markets. Beverly Morris, who's our Director of Fixed Income and Absolute Return, joins me now to discuss policy rates and inflation. Bev, on Friday, US consumer prices increased for a third consecutive month in August. Does a drill down of the data by you provide support that the US economy is rebounding from the worst period of the pandemic? Yeah, hi, Craig. Yeah, look, it was an interesting print on Friday. As you said, it was it was stronger than expected. And that's actually the second really quite stronger than expected um, print we've had in a row now. So core, core CPI was up 0.4 um, on the month in August, and that's following the 0.6 in um, in the previous month. So quite a couple of strong months. Um, but as you said, the market, after you know a brief little positive reaction to that number, really sort of looked into the details of that number and, and weren't overly convinced. So what we're seeing, um, which is quite interesting because it is is really re- reflecting very similar trends to what we're seeing in, in some of the spending and activity data too, is that the goods sector is seeing a lot of strength. So um, in the month, we saw used car prices jump the most since 1969 um, and household furnishings also jump the strongest that they've um, recorded since 1991. So the Good sectors are really seeing very strong bounces from some of their COVID, uh, their initial COVID um, declines, um, but the service sector is still tracking, you know, relatively soft. And I think that you know that's what the market was was looking through the numbers to see. Um, owners' equivalent rent, um, for example, is still running pretty soft. Um, you know, but on the whole, I would say inflation um, data is holding up and coming through um, uh, stronger um, than most people thought it would in the in the face of um, a very deep recession and a very big fall off in activity. Um, notwithstanding the fact that we're seeing, you know, some sectors do better than other others. Um, overall, inflation is 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 holding up much better than I think people would have thought, and it's probably telling the market we're probably past the worst now. Um, um, and and now it's on to the markets looking forward on into the you know the more medium term in, inflation picture. And and Bev, you just mentioned before that the markets didn't react. Was that the case as well for the U.S. rates market? Did it react at all to the data? So not too many moves um, in rates markets on Friday in the U.S. At least um, yields were at about one basis point lower on the day. Curves were a little bit steeper, but but break-even markets were a touch softer again. So that's really following on the price action that we've seen probably for a week and a half now, where um, after their very strong run, we have seen um, a bit of consolidation in those inflation markets. Obviously, they'd touched, you know, they'd gone back to pre-COVID 
COVID levels and they'd had very strong recovery. But for the time being, I think, you know, um, they're, they're sitting back and waiting uh, and perhaps, you know, FOMC will, will give them, you know, another lead. Excellent. Bev, let's switch to policy because last month the FOMC released its average inflation targeting framework. Bev, this week we have further details uh, being released. What are you expecting? Yeah, look, it's interesting, Craig, because when um, we had Jackson Hole, and obviously there was a very um, big reaction to, to that statement, um, and certainly we've commented a lot that, you know, we felt it was a fairly um, important development in, in the global policy landscape. Um, that then lifted expectations into what the Fed was going to deliver at a September FOMC meeting this week. But in the meantime, uh, I think markets have gone off the boil a little bit um, in terms of expectations for FOMC. I would say they're actually not that high. Um, in terms of what they're looking for from the Fed this week. We know we're going to get updated forecasts, so um, we know they're probably going to have to upgrade some of their GDP and inflation forecasts just because of exactly what we're just talking about there, that some of the data has been coming through a bit better than expected. Um, we're also going to be getting uh, new dots. Um, that's if we do actually get dots. I mean, there are sort of rumours that they might um, actually do away with them altogether. Um, but if they don't, we're going to get new new forecasts for 2023 um, for the first time. So the market will obviously be interested to see what they look like. Um, but look, in, in terms of, you know, really concrete announcements following Jackson Hole, I don't think the market is expecting too much. Um, so I think if, if we do get more than that, um, then I think there's definitely um, the chance for the FOMC to surprise this week. But, you know, as you know, um, we do think this is a very important, you know, longer term development for the policy landscape globally. Um, you know, they're not in a hurry, perhaps, um, to, to, to come up with too many details. But, you know, we don't think they're going to do anything to, to walk back any of the positive um, changes that they've been talking about. You know, ultimately, the success of average inflation targeting um, will depend on fiscal. And you mentioned there around market expectation of central banks. Let's come back to Australia, Bev. The RBA is being accused, perhaps frustratingly for them, of being out of tune with market expectations. Do you think the RBA will persist with that uh, term funding facility? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously they've just announced changes to the term funding facility, um, you know, a week or two ago. It didn't get a huge amount of attention in the market. Perhaps they're a little bit, you know, frustrated with that. Um, we do get the RBA minutes this week, which, um, uh, you know, up until probably 24 hours ago, the market wasn't too excited about. But um, there was a, an article released in the AFR this morning that, that appears as though, you know, it, it may be a sourced article. John Kehoe is the same journalist journalist that broke um, the early lead on the yield curve control policy um, a few months ago. Um, and that article this morning is hinting that the fact that the RBA may be very close to announcing um, new policy easing. Um, so that article is uh, is not too specific um, in, in terms of what policy measures might might be announced, but um, among those that the market has been, um, you know, flirting with in the last few weeks has been a reduction in the cash rate uh, to 10 basis point and potentially alongside with that a reduction in the yield curve control target to, to 10 basis points as well. Um, but the article this morning is is going a little bit further and saying that they may actually push out the curve. Um, and, and why are they doing that? Because obviously the three-year point is what they were targeting as 
as the best point for the private sector. Um, but the article is hinting that, you know, they're here to, to, to help the government get its issuance away and assist them in any form they can to get that um, fiscal spending out into the economy. So, look, we'll just have to wait and see whether that, that article today is a precursor to what is going to be delivered, you know, either this week or potentially over the coming months. Um, but just like everywhere else, the distinction between monetary and fiscal policy is blurring in this crisis. Um, and, and, you know, what was very successful early on um, in, in March was the coordinated actions of banks, governments and central banks. And, and, and that's very much still still in play. Well said. Thanks, Bev, for that update on inflation rates and policy. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela for Market Moments. Paul Nicholson, our Director of Global Absolute Return and Income Funds, joins me now on QPod. Paul, we've heard earlier from Stu today that Brexit talks have impacted the pound. On Friday, the UK signed that agreement with Japan, opening UK business up to that Asia-Pacific region with tariff relief. Whilst Europe are claiming Boris Johnson is trying to change the agreed divorce treaty with regards to Brexit, is this evidence that the UK are wrangling for a new Brexit deal, Paul? Yeah, thanks. Morning, everybody. Um, Essentially, let's take a step back and sort of remind ourselves what happened. Um, So at the end of last year, the UK essentially left the EU. Um, so that divorce has happened, but what they haven't done is agree on what terms. And so essentially by the 15th of October, they're going to have to agree on which trading terms they're going to um, interconnect with each other going forward. Now, what uh, the government in the UK has done is they've brought forward what they call the UK Internal Market Act. Um, essentially, this brings into the to the mix, the Northern Ireland question again, uh, and fisheries. And so there's a lot of um, accusations of food blockades, uh, you know, backroom meetings and uh, just general sort of skullduggery going around. But essentially what we think this is meaning is, is about the financial passport. That is something that hasn't been spoken about yet, but it's the hottest contended uh, aspect of the divorce deal essentially to date. and. What the government is doing is is um, they're trying to put in place an insurance policy, which means that if they don't get what they want, they will walk away on WTO, WTO terms as of October 15th. So this is going to go to the deadline. October 15th is the European Council meeting. That's where it should get ratified and agreed. And then the home countries actually go back to get it ratified in their home uh, home areas and countries. And so essentially what's happening here is a is a game of chicken being played between Europe and the UK. Uh, the UK essentially wants that financial passport. Uh, that's where you can sell your services, your financial services right across Europe without um, hindrance. And I think that's really what's at the crux of all of this Brexit issues. However, that has huge ramifications for everybody, um, not just uh, from the EU and, and, and in the UK, but also, you know, like what's going on with the Bank of England. We, we also have the Bank of England this week. Um, we know that they're very likely to be on hold. We, you know, we have heard from uh, Chief Economist last week and he says, you know, negative rates are really not on the agenda this time. Uh, what will be interesting will be hints into an extension of the quantitative easing programs that they've had in place. Uh, we'd be of the view that they're probably going to wait and see 
um, particularly given what's happening with Brexit at the minute. And of course, they have a November meeting coming up that will give them extra headroom before year end to actually do something uh, about that. Uh, they, they still have, you know, you remember they, they extended the QE program last June. Um, so they've still got a lot of headroom there in order to continue that process. And if they need to, they'll, they'll crank that engine again for November's meeting as well. And this is all going to be, you know, contested with Brexit and depending on how that, that deal goes. Well, I'm glad you just referenced back to Brexit there, Paul, because in amongst all this wrangling that we talked about earlier, Europe has just had a really disappointing inflation outcome. The ECB's chief economist, Philip Lane, blamed the strong euro for this. Is the ECB being too relaxed on growth, Paul? No, look, you know, the, the the reality is, whenever the Federal Reserve brought up their um, their, their inflation to average inflation targeting, the reality was, as we discussed, that it's going to have huge ramifications for every central bank. Uh, it's whenever anybody targets currency or inflation, it has massive ramifications globally in terms of, um, uh, you know, there, there's it's not always a zero sum game in that regard. So yes, the, the, the reality is we've probably taken off, you know, with the appreciation of the euro's probably taken off about 25 bips of growth over the next couple of years, but that's done as well, right? You know, that that's in the bag and it's really going forward and, you know, increasing this jawboning of the currency and, and what they're going to look at inflation, I think will be quite a focus for them. And they sort of said that last week in terms of they'll wait and see until November, but, um, you know, certainly they they stand ready to, to increase quite aggressively those programs that they have in place. And they've got very substantial programs at this point, Craig. Mm -hmm. But like we said last week, you know, we, we weren't expecting them to do anything last week. That was you know, as we've seen, and they will be monitoring it very closely, both Brexit as well as the Eurozone inflation level, as well as what the FOMC does this week as well. You know, this, uh, this is a global game, and I, I think that um, a lot of people are waiting to see how certain aspects for the remainder of the year play out, and sort of these risk, left tail risks. Excellent. Thanks, Paul, for that update on Europe and UK. Richard Garland, who is our Senior Portfolio Manager and Research Analyst for Global Credit. Could I ask you to join us, please, on QPod to discuss macro credit? Richie, we've seen the equity markets enter a period of increased volatility, yet credit has bucked any of these correlations. Why is that? Yeah, it's good. Uh, good morning, Craig. Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. You know, we have seen an increase in equity volatility, but you know there's been good stability evident in, in the credit markets. And we think there's a number of reasons for this credit outperformance. And we think it's set to continue, particularly when you see heightened volatility or, or down markets. Um, and you know, firstly, you know, we know that large central banks of the world are buying credit and they can actually buy a lot more if volatility increases. And if you see um, a hampered credit market function, and then secondly, what we've seen is front-loaded corporate issuance, which means that, you know, when volatility intensifies here, corporates have very large amounts of liquidity and can really pause their issuance program. And then thirdly, at this point in the cycle, corporate balance sheets are really favouring credit over equity investors. And this really means that during further times of stress, equity raises, dividend cuts and cash preservation will be favoured to, to stabilise corporates. And these are all obviously uh, credit positive and, and equity negative. And then finally, in the low yield environment, credit securities have become really an asset of choice because of the extra yield they do offer over, over government bonds. 
And during risk-off environments, as government bonds rally and credit spreads move wider, the yield differential increases, making credit more attractive. So a, a virtuous cycle, if you like. Excellent. Thank you, Richie. And certainly showing that resilience as those markets look at that risk-off sort of outcome. Thank you, everyone, for your comments today. In summary, with equity markets starting to cough and splutter, there seems a real momentum in the world of monetary policy and the focus on influencing currencies rather for trade support. And whilst we've been highlighting the inflation genie on the QPod for some time now, we are starting to see signs of it in the US, but however, not Europe. And of course, as Richard just updated us before, global credit continues to be the quiet achiever, really highlighting the supportive fundamentals it has in this recent period of equity volatility. Thank you for listening to us on QPod's Market Moments this morning and have a super week ahead.